All right. We're going to cover uh, a number of chapters this morning, and we're going to start at the end. So we're going to jump to chapter 20. And I, I want to start here, but this kind of sets up uh, where we're going this morning. The, the title of this morning's lesson is The Long and Winding Road. Um, last week, uh, we looked at, you know, it's a, what a long, strange trip it's been. And, and the emphasis is on this trip. Why? Because we're dealing with Paul. And we're dealing with his journeys, his missionary journeys. And you've noticed that we haven't put any maps up um, purposely. Um, every time I've been in an act study, it's just like map after map after map. And I just, you know, just go blind. We're, we're not doing that. And it's, it's because I want to keep the focus on the person, not the places, but the person. And so we're looking at the life of Paul. But here in verse 22 of chapter 20, he says this, this is Paul speaking. He says, I am bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. <laughs> now, how does he start this thing out? The Holy Spirit has bound me to go to Jerusalem. And here's all I know. Everywhere I go, it's going to suck. I mean... That's my paraphrase, but does that excite you? I mean, does that, if, if you woke up tomorrow morning and the Holy Spirit said, you know, the rest of your life's going to be full of misery and heartache, get going. I, I think you'd go, well, man, what did I eat last night? What, what is going on? This is his life. But look what he says. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So here he is. He's been told by the Spirit, this is your life. This is your lot. Every city you go into, there's going to be suffering. And yet he says, you know what? If I don't do this, my life will be worth nothing because I've got to finish the work assigned to me, the work of telling others the good news. And it's interesting in this, this is the New Living Translation, but two times you see the word work, the work. And it's actually two different words in the original language. And one of them is dromos. And he's referring to the course of his life. He's got this course of life that's been given to him by God. And what that means to me and what it should mean to you is that every man in this room has a course of life. Your life's different than mine. Uh, the, the trajectory of your life is diff different than mine. You know, we had the uh, funeral for uh, Ray Coleman yesterday. And, and I, I think I knew, knew Ray for 18 years. And I thought I knew a lot about Ray until I heard his best friend of 60 years get up and tell stories. And uh, some of you know that Ray was uh, with the Ben Hogan uh, Corporation for years. And uh, he traveled with Ben Hogan, was close friends with Ben Hogan. And he ran with some of the big dogs in golf. And Ray was an excellent golfer. But he had this trajectory of life that I didn't have. You know, he rode with the Ryder Cup team on the Concord and he played St. Andrews and he, you know, he's, he had real highs and real lows in his life, but he had a course of his life and you have a course of your life. The second word is diakonia and that ought to look familiar to you, but it's where we get the word deacon. And that's the idea of his assignment, his calling, what God had called him to do. So he's got these two things, the course of his life that God has given him and the calling on his life. And what's interesting is they both represent that calling. 
You can't separate them. And what we do in our culture is we separate them. Well, I'm a lawyer and I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a banker and I'm a Christian. We, we just, we see them as two separate things. So when you go to work, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's, that's kind of in the, back, the background and I just do my banking thing. When I go to church, I'm a Christian. When I'm with my family, I'm a Christian. But it's, we separate them, but Paul wouldn't. His life and ministry were one and the same. The course of his life didn't differ from the calling on his life. And he says what? My life is worth nothing if I don't do what I'm on this planet to do. And I want you to hear that because that applies to every guy in this room. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care if you're retired. You have been called by God for a purpose. You are in the family of God for a purpose. You're on this earth for a purpose. And he says, my life's worth nothing. And he would uh, elaborate on this many times in his own letters. In Philippians, he says, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage. It's dung. So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He was obsessed with this idea of what God has called him to do. And his life would be nothing if he didn't do it. He says in Corinthians, I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. Can anybody, any one of us in this room say this? I can't. I can't honestly say I do everything to spread the news. Now, here's what I could say. In my life, I have done everything to not share the good news on most occasions. I know I should, but I don't want to. It's embarrassing. They may say no. They may laugh at me. They may reject me. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But see, he took a different tact. And then in Corinthians, he says, I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. What's he mean? I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and go, I wish I had blank. You know, it's interesting when you do a funeral that the one thing that's on everybody's mind when you do a funeral is what? Death. Somebody just died. And you can't sit there and not think about when will I be the one? And what will people say about me? And what will be my regrets? As you're lying on your, your deathbed and you're thinking about that last breath you're going to take, will you be able to say, I ran with purpose in every step? I finished well. I ran the race well. And I don't feel disqualified in any way. That doesn't mean that we're not going to get to the end of life and wish there were things that we could have done differently. But guys, my heart and my desire is that for you and for me that we would take some of that attitude that Paul had and look at our lives and go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live this life, the course of my life, wherever it may take me, and I'm going to do it for the glory of God. I'm going to live with a mission. But he's gonna, we know this about Paul. He had been chosen by Jesus. And next week we're going to dig into, and many of you have been waiting, when are you going to talk about the conversion of Paul? Well, next week we will. Because next week we're going to look at the multiple times he got the chance to share his testimony in front of dignitaries. And that's why I'm taking chapter 9, which we skipped, and we're going to tie it to those chapters because he's going to tell that testimony over and over again how Jesus Christ called him, chose him. 
And here's what Jesus said about him. He is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And over the next weeks and months, as we, not months, but weeks, as we look at the rest of this book, you're going to see him literally standing before governors and ultimately before the emperor of Rome in fulfillment of this promise. We know he was, he was called. We know he was commissioned. He was appointed along with Barnabas, and we looked at this last week, and he was sent out. They laid hands on him, and they said, get going. Didn't know where they were going, didn't know what it was going to entail, but we do know this. The Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So they're called, they're appointed, they're sent, they went. And what we see as we look at these chapters, really from chapter 16 to 20, is this long and winding road. It was this circuitous path that he took that he never knew exactly where he was going to go next. It was long. It was winding, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, good times, bad times. And it was never quite easy. What, what did Jesus say? Your life will be marked by suffering. What did the Holy Spirit tell him? Every city you go to, you'll discover suffering. Wow, that's fun. That's exciting. Sign me up. And if you read his life, you see that it was a long-term, really intense marathon, not a sprint. It was just day after day, week after week, filled with all those peaks and valleys of life. And, and we see in chapter 16, and I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. I want to use chapter 16 as just a synopsis of a day in the life of Paul. So he goes to Lystra, or Lustra. And he meets Timothy in verses one through four. Then he goes to Troas. There he has a vision. Uh, and God speaks to him through this vision. He ends up in Philippi. He meets Lydia. He leads her to the Lord. In Philippi, he exercises a demon-possessed girl. And he gets in trouble with her owners because now she can no longer tell fortunes and can't make them money. And so he ends up in prison. He gets thrown in prison. And in prison, there's an earthquake. And the earthquake knocks the chains off their feet and their hands. It knocks the doors of the prison open, not only for them, but every prisoner in the place. And they get released, but they don't leave. And the amazing thing of that story is not so much the miracle of the chains falling off, is the fact that when the jailer wakes up and sees that every single prisoner's door is open and they're unchained, he panics. Why? Because they're all free. And what does he think is going to happen next? They're going to kill me. I'm a guard. They're the prisoners. The chains are off. I'm a dead man. And what happens? Paul leads them to Christ. Because they didn't leave. And what Paul says, hey, don't panic. We're all still here. Now, that's a miracle, guys. Because if you're in prison, I know this about you. If you were in prison and the jail door swung open, you'd be gone. You'd be the flash. You'd be like, where'd he go? These are criminals. These are hardened criminals, murderers, rapists, you name it. And the doors are open and they're all still standing there. And the inference from this passage is they never left. They went back in their cells. Paul and Silas spent the night. And the next day they got set free because they found out that they were Roman citizens. But that's not the issue for me. The issue is here that this is just one part, one chapter of the life of Paul. All these places, all these different events that he ran into, some good, some bad, led Lydia to faith, exercised this demon out of a girl, ends up in jail. That was a typical day in the life of Paul. 
suffering, rejection. And he leads this jailer to Christ. In this passage, there's two things I want to look at. One we looked at last week, so I'm not going to spend time on it. And it's this question that the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And Jonathan did a great job of dealing with that. The gospel, what is the gospel? How do you get saved? But the second question that comes up, and I've had multiple guys come and ask me about this as they've read these chapters, has to do with infant baptism. And you're like, well, I didn't see that. Why do we even care? Here's why I want to take just a minute to do kind of an aside and look at this, because in, in these chapters, you're going to see, uh, really in the book of Acts, this is where those who are proponents of infant baptism go to prove their belief in infant baptism. We as a church, Christ Chapel, does not, we do not believe in infant baptism. We do not practice infant baptism. And I'm not here to um, demean anybody who does, Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, Catholics. I just want you to know why we believe what we believe because I want you to know why you believe what you believe. That's really important to me. And when we did the Reformation series, we touched on this but I can't help but deal with it again because it's going to be in this passage we're looking at today. Why do people believe in this and why don't we? Well, this, this experience with the jailer brings it to head because it says the jailer called for lights, ran to the dungeon, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the context they tell him the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then it says, along with everyone in your household. So this is where it starts. This is where uh, proponents of infant baptism go. This idea of everyone, along with everyone in your household. Sounds all conclusive, right? All inclusive. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that the hour of the night, the jailer cared for them, washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were what? Immediately baptized. You see that repeated phrase, household, household, household. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Now, what happens here is that they go to this word household, and it's the word poineke, and it basically means, it can mean house, it can mean household, it can mean family. It gets translated a number of different ways. It can include slaves, it can include servants, it can include children, it can include uh, adult children. It's, it's a pretty inclusive word that's used a lot of different ways in Scripture. And this is the, one of the main passages, and there's multiple, and we're only going to look at a couple, that they go to to prove infant baptism. So in the book of Acts, you've got 12 different descriptions of conversion stories, okay? And we've, we've seen several of them already. All of them, every single one of them include adult believing and then baptism. So adults who believe and then are baptized. There's always an adult involved. Four mention households, just like we've seen here. Those are the four passages that proponents of infant baptism go to to say that children should be baptized. The jailer was baptized, his family, his household was baptized, and they were all part of the family of God. We would disagree. We would interpret this passage differently. So we look at Cornelius back, back in chapter 10. You remember when Peter saw the sheet come down and God said, you're going to go to Cornelius's house and what I've declared clean is 
clean. It's no longer unclean. He goes to Cornelius, who's a Roman, and he preaches the gospel to everyone there. And it says, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the gospel. Now, what's important in there? They heard the gospel. Now, that word heard has the idea of not just hearing, but comprehending, getting it. If you came up to me and you spoke to me in French this morning, I would hear you, but I would stare at you like a deer in the headlights. I heard, but I don't comprehend. I don't get it. There's, there's the inference here that they heard and they got it because they spoke in tongues. They got the spirit. They had the result of hearing and believing, and they were what? Baptized. Heard the gospel, manifestation of the indwelling presence of the spirit, and then they were baptized. How about Acts chapter 16? Lydia, we didn't look at it in chapter 16, but there's the story of Lydia coming to faith. Lydia heard the gospel message and believed is what the text tells us. They're in her home. They're sharing before her and her household. And it says that she and those in her household were baptized as a result of believing. See, the believing is important. The hearing, you got to hear first if you're going to believe, but you got to hear, you got to respond, and then you have to believe. And as a result of believing, you're what? They were baptized. But this is, again, one of the passages they will go to and say, well, it says all of her household was baptized, but they gloss over, but there's belief. You have to believe. And then the Philippian jailer's household, it says the entire household heard the gospel, verse 32, salvation was tied to belief. They believed. It's not tied to baptism. So their salvation is not tied to the fact that they were baptized. They were baptized because they believed. And that's how we would view it. It says they all believed in God, verse 34, and as a result, they were all baptized. Now, why is this so important to me? Because I want you to, I want you to know why you believe what you believe. Here's what I don't want you to do. If you have a friend who's a Presbyterian, and I have many friends who are Presbyterians. So if you have a friend who's a Catholic, a friend who's an... A, um, a Lutheran, and they come up to you and they invite you to their baptism of their infant child, I don't want you to say, well, we don't believe in that. I'm not coming. It's heresy. Not only will you lose a friend, you'll do a disservice to the Bible. I, I want you to be able to talk to them. I want you to love them. Yes, you disagree. And there are many of my friends I disagree with on this topic, but I still love them. We still talk. We still get along. I still think they're going to heaven. But if we sit down and talk, I want to be able to go to these same passages and say, here's how we understand these passages. I don't want to just say, well, I don't agree with you. I think you're wrong. Because that's just polarizing. But it forces us to have to, here's the deal. How do they go to the same Bible, to the same passages and reach different conclusions? Well, how they interpret the passages and how they interpret them in conjunction with other passages. So the whole reason I'm doing this this morning is I want you to know what you believe. And here's a case in point. This is, I'm gonna read you a quote from R.C. Sproul who died just a few months ago. R.C. Sproul is one of my heroes. R.C. Sproul uh, is a reformed theologian. He's a covenantalist, I'm not. He uh, is one of the wisest men I think who ever lived, great theologian, but we differ on this topic. So here's what he says about infant baptism. He starts out pretty strongly. I think it's a sin, and you can quote me, not to baptize your children. Now, right out of the get-go, what is he basically saying to you and I, or at least to me? 
If you don't practice infant baptism, you're sinning. That's a little harsh, R.C., um, but that's what he believed. He says, God was going to kill Moses for not circumcising his son. It's a very serious matter to administer the sign of the covenant to believers and not to their infants. And nowhere is there in biblical content that principle of solidarity ever, ever abrogated. Now, what's he saying? What they believe is in the Old Testament, you had the sign of circumcision. That was a sign of the covenant. So if you're a Jew, you circumcised your male child, infant child at eight days. They believe that the New Testament sign of the covenant is now baptism. And there's a continuity between those. And that's why they're, they're, they're covenantalists. They believe that the covenant has been continued by baptism, water baptism. That's why they baptize infants. They circumcise male boys. We baptize infant children into the family of God. Then he goes on, he says, I think there's a huge mistake when we exclude the children of believers from the sign of the covenant, all right? And so I think it's a serious matter because I wanna make sure with the administration of the sacraments that we're doing what's pleasing to God. So I think it's pleasing to God to baptize infants of believers. There's his stance, that's what he believes. Get it, understand it, don't agree with it, but that's what you believe. Then he goes on, he says, there's not, and this is really important to listen to this, guys, there's not an explicit teaching in the New Testament that says you must baptize children of believers. Stop. What's he, what's he admitting? And every covenantalist theologian will admit this. There's nowhere in the Bible does it say baptize your infant children. But he says this, nor is there an ex explicit prohibition in the New Testament that says, no, you may not baptize the children of infant or children of believers. Now, I don't know if this jumps out at you, but this is like Pandora's box. It doesn't say you have to, but it also doesn't say you can't. Now, if you take that as your means of interpretation of scripture, I can go a lot of places with that one that are probably gonna land me in some really dicey places. Now again, I love R.C. Sproul. I respect him highly. But again, this is where I don't agree. He says, so you have to rest your case on inferences drawn from narratives and other texts of the Bible. So what they do is they, they go back and they try to find other passages that support the belief of baptizing your infants. What's interesting is, is that Infant baptism showed up somewhere around the end of the second century, early third century, and it was promulgated by the Catholic Church. We know from the Reformation, Martin Luther practiced it. We know that Calvin practiced it. Melanchthon practiced it. Where did all of those men come out of the Catholic Church? And it was one of the, the things that they kept. Now, there were many who came out of the Reformation who didn't. That's what led to Anabaptists. That's what led to Anabaptists being killed is they refuse to baptize infants. But it still is going on today. And, and I'm not trying to set you against anybody. I just want you to know what we believe. And if you believe the same thing, I want you to know why you believe. And if you're interested and you want to know more, there's a handout on the table back there that will go into greater detail about this very thing written by somebody who came out of the, the same basic background, had been baptized in an infant, went and studied the scriptures at a reformed seminary and came to a different conclusion. It's just important for me, guys, for you to wrestle with these things and not just blow past them. 
So here's what I, I see. Infant baptism involves someone incapable of choice. You're baptizing an infant who never made a choice to be baptized. They never believed. They never heard. They never were saved. They never expressed faith. When, when a couple brings their infant to be baptized in any of those denominations, the baptism is based on the faith of who? The parent. That's not biblical. That's not the way salvation is imparted. It's nowhere taught in the rest of the New Testament. It's incorrectly tied to the covenant of circumcision. And that breaks down, guys, because if you look at who got circumcised, boys, not girls, boys, very targeted. And here's the other thing. If they're being baptized into the covenant family, into the family of God, and they're covenantal members of the family of God, why don't they get to take communion? See, I know of no Presbyterian church, Catholic church, where infants take communion. Well, wait a minute. They're part of the family of God. They've been baptized in. Why don't they get to take communion? So this thing begins to break down after a while. And so, again, I'm not trying to be controversial. I really just am trying to get us to understand that when you read this, the scriptures, you will sometimes see things. You will reach the conclusion you've reached. And the person next to you reads the same passage and they have a different conclusion. And what you have to do is figure out why do I believe this? And where do I go to, to support this? And you always have to interpret the scripture by the scripture. So back on the track. Chapter 17. Where do we see this guy going? We saw in chapter 16, he goes to Troas. He goes to Philippi. Now he goes to Amphipolis. He goes to Apollonia. He goes to Thessalonica. I'm not going to show you a map because it doesn't really matter. You can tell by the names, these places are strange, they're different, they're not in Judea, they're all over the place. He's going to predominantly Greek places, but he always ends up in the synagogue. Why? Because he loves Jews and he wants to see them come to faith. And he goes to the synagogue and things sometimes go well, sometimes they don't. And he explains the prophecies and proves that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. So he hints to the the synagogue, and he tells these people about the Messiah. What's the one thing when you read through these chapters that Paul is always talking about? Yes, the gospel. But what about the gospel? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's always talking about the resurrection, whether he's talking to Jews or Gentiles. When do we typically talk about the resurrection? Easter. It's coming up, right? And we will get inundated with the message of Easter and, and the resurrection. And, and I, I'm all over that. I think that's great. But then we kind of go dark the rest of the year. And we really don't talk about the resurrection. For Paul, it was in his vocabulary every day of his life. It was the main thing he talked about because it's the key to what we believe. As I stood there yesterday doing the funeral for Ray Coleman, I had nothing to offer that congregation if I can't talk about the resurrection of the dead. If Jesus Christ isn't raised, guess what? Ray Coleman's not. If Jesus Christ didn't die and rise from the dead and ascend back up into heaven and he didn't prepare a place for Ray, then Ray's, I don't know where Ray is, but here's what I know. I believe in the resurrection. Paul believed in the resurrection. That's why he told the Corinthians, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. We're wasting our breath and you're wasting your time. The resurrection is everything. Your faith is useless. What do you believe in? You can say, well, I believe in Jesus. What about Jesus is it that you believe? 
He died for my sins. Great. What if he's still in the grave? Then you still got sins and you still got a problem and you still got a debt to pay. Because the thing that certified and guaranteed his payment was his resurrection. The resurrection is key. God, we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. One of the interesting things you're going to see as we move through the rest of this book is that Paul's going to um, appear before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the Jewish religious council made up of mostly Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, totally rejected it. Because they, they didn't think that the body, they thought of the body as evil and sinful. Why would God resurrect a body that's evil and sinful? So there's a soul, but no body, so no resurrection. The Pharisees, of which Paul was one, believed in the resurrection. And those two groups were always fighting. But here's what he believed. Jesus and the Messiah are one and the same. Now, for that to be true, for Paul to say to a group of Jews, Jesus, the man you killed, who you crucified is also your Messiah. What is critical for that to be true? The resurrection. How could a dead man be your Messiah if he's dead? He's a martyr. What transforms Jesus from a martyr into the Messiah is what? The resurrection. So everywhere this guy goes, he's talking about the resurrection. And it says, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, some Greeks a few prominent women, but some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered troublemakers from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot. There's that long and winding road again. Doing well, things are great. Some are believing, some are coming to faith, and then there's a mob. And what's he have to do? Get out of town. Go to the next town. So the, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. They're on to their next place. They, they've been chased out of town for what? Talking about the resurrection talking about Jesus, talking about him being the Messiah. And then they end up there. They talk to the Jews again, and it says, many of the Jews believe, as did many prominent Greek men and women. But when some of the Jews back in Thessalonica learned that Paul was in Berea talking about Jesus and the resurrection, they show up, and they stir up trouble again. And so what happens? They have to get out of town again. Believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast while Silas and Timothy remain behind. And so he ends up where? He's just left one town to go to another town, chased out of both towns because he's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, and he ends up in Athens. Now, this ought to trigger something in your mind. Of all the names we looked at, Berea, Thessalonica, Athens you're familiar with, right? Right? You had enough probably Greek history in school to know that Athens is a pretty significant place. And this is where we see Paul heading into the mouth of the beast. He's like going to the darkness. He's, he's getting into the territory where it's going to get darker and darker and more dangerous than anything he's experienced before. And it's proof of the influence of Satan. And as I read this story, what I can't escape is that when you guys walk around this world, you ought to have the same reaction that we're going to see Paul had. I didn't watch the Academy Awards because I can't stomach it. But here's what I know about the Academy Awards. It is a celebration of evil. It's a celebration of everything antithetical to God. It's the worship of what? Man. And, and it's just our society 
is screwed up. And what's interesting is that he goes to this place called Athens and it says, while waiting for his friends to show up, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. See, I want you to be troubled by what you see. I want you to read the newspaper and watch the internet and watch the news. And I want you to be troubled by what you see, almost to the point where you, I don't want to watch this anymore. But if you can watch it and it doesn't bother you, there's something wrong. See, he couldn't walk around Athens and not look at all these idols and go, this place is totally screwed up. He didn't just see figurines. He didn't just see statues. He saw Satan, the influence of Satan. And what's he do? He goes to the synagogue and he reasons once again with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke to people everywhere he could go. Why? Because he's troubled, because he sees that the city is in deep need of something. They need Jesus. He even debates with these, these philosophers, Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. And it says, when he told them about what? Jesus and the resurrection. Good grief, Paul. Can't you think of something else to talk about? He couldn't. He's talking to philosophers and he starts telling them, what's the worst audience you can probably talk to about the resurrection of Jesus? Philosophers. And look at their reaction. What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? This guy's, this guy's a moron. This guy's crazy. He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. He's a babbler. He's a fool. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We're the wise guys. We know everything. He doesn't seem to know anything. It's the resurrection that threw them off. And it should. Think about it. A dead Jewish rabbi gets brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit and he's the Messiah of the world. He's the Savior of the world. That is bizarre at any level. And it was to these people. But it's the crux of all that we believe. And I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. Nobody comes to faith through intelligence. It, it'll never happen. He used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified and inferred in that is what he was crucified and what? He rose again. The Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, that's nonsense. You're a babbler. You don't know what you're talking about. But it's the key to the message that every one of us have to share that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's the hope of our future resurrection and redemption and glorification. So it was key to everything that Paul had to say. And, and I love Paul because he's such a, um, he knows how to work the crowd. So he's talking to these philosophers and he says, you know, I look around, I see you, you guys are religious. It's kind of a backhanded compliment, but he says, you're religious because you got all these statues. And then he starts talking about their shrines and he says, but you got this one that's to an unknown God. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about this God that you don't know. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. It's the God who created all things. And he goes on to tell them about God who created them and he doesn't need them. He doesn't need a statue formed of him. He is God, the creator of all things, who sent his son to die on the cross for their sins. 
He says, human hands can't serve his needs. He has no needs. He gives life. He gives breath. He's the one that puts you on this planet. He created all the nations and he satisfies all your needs. It's not these other gods. It's the one true God. And then he tells him, you know, God put up with your ignorance for a while, but he's done. Why? Because he sent his son. There's a solution. You don't need to remain ignorant. Now he commands everyone everywhere to turn, repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's he talking about? Jesus. You got to believe in Jesus. And he proved to everyone who this is, who this man is by what? By raising him from the dead. There he is again. First time he mentioned it, they, they called him a babbler. Now he's telling him, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, guess what? You are judged. This is serious. You can laugh. You can call me a fool. You can call God a fool. But guess what, guys? This is the wisdom of God. This is how all men are made right with God. And it's the only way by believing in the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Others, it says, we want to hear more. And then you have a third group. Some joined him and became believers. So you have three different groups. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and you will always get three different responses when you share the gospel. Rejection, curiosity, and belief. Which one do we get usually the less, the least? belief. You usually get rejection. So when you go share the gospel, if you start telling somebody about Jesus Christ rising from the dead, living in your heart, redeeming you from your sins, preparing a place for you in heaven, most people reject it and call you a fool. There will be some will go, that's interesting. Tell me more. There will be a few who say, I want that. I want to, I want to accept that. I need that. But you'll always have those, reject, those, those three responses. Here's what I love about Paul. He didn't really care what the response was. He just kept doing it. Sometimes he got chased out of Dodge. Sometimes they came to faith. Sometimes they were curious. Sometimes they tried to stone him. Sometimes they beat him. But he always just kept telling, what, the same message. He didn't really care about the response. He cared about being faithful to telling the message. So your job's not to save anybody. What's your job? to tell everybody. That's all you have to do and leave the results up to God. And that's what Paul did. Well, I want to transition to these last couple of chapters because one of the things that I see in the life of Paul is Paul knew that he had numbered days. He knew that his life wasn't going to last forever. And so you see him beginning to prepare for the inevitable. And this is kind of sensitive to me right now after just having done a funeral but here's what I know. I'm going to die one day. And here's what I can guarantee every one of you in this room this morning. You're going to die. Some sooner than others, but you're going to die. And so what I see in Paul is this fervor to finish his life well, but he also knew that I'm not always going to be here, but the gospel has to keep going. So I'm going to prepare my replacements. I'm going to get others ready. So he goes to Corinth and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And we're not going to dig into their story, but this is a couple that he met. And he began to disciple them and train them. 
and raised them up because he knew he needed to have replacements. He already had Barnabas, he had Silas, he had Titus, he had others that he was pouring into, but he was always looking for his replacements. He wanted others to take the gospel because he knew I could end up dead anywhere I go. Whenever God says it's time, I'm gone. Same thing for you. I could step off this platform when I'm done and collapse of a heart attack. It could happen right now. And guess what? This ministry would go on. This church would go on. And isn't that sad? Doesn't that make you kind of sad? Probably doesn't make you sad, but it makes me sad. To think that this church could go on without me, you know? That this ministry would go on without me. You know, every time I let Jonathan or Matt teach, part of me just goes, I want them to suck. I don't want them to teach well because then, you know, I have, and some of you guys come up and say, when are you retiring? Uh, I'm not. But Paul, he knows his days are numbered and he knows the message has to be going. And so he's always raising up replacements. See, are you, are you raising up your replacement? You know, the idea of discipleship and mentoring scares the bejeebers out of most of us, but we've been doing a whole sermon series on it. Who's your replacement? Who are you raising up? You have a responsibility to train the next generation. And I'm telling you guys, the next generation is in trouble. It's in huge trouble. If we don't speak into their lives, and most of us in this room are over 45. And the next generation is under 45. And if you're not worried about the future, you should be. Because we need to train up those who are going to come behind us. Here's what Paul told Timothy. You have heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. <coughs> now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Teach others. I can't, I can't teach. Share your life. Share the scriptures. Share what God's doing in your life. Train up your replacements. And there's this really interesting little snippet here in, in this book of Acts where Paul meets these guys and he takes them with him on a trip and they're named Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Who are these guys? They're seven men that he has led to faith and who are traveling with him and they're his sons in the faith. And what I saw when I read this is it goes directly against another seven sons mentioned in the same chapter, the sons of Sceva. And this is in your notes, so I'm not going to go through this. But basically, it's a juxtaposition between men who are trained by their father, and they end up becoming exorcists. And they're so bad at what they do that the demon they exercise beats them and strips them naked, and they end up running off. Man, success. There's our future. There's the hope. And these sons of Saul who were equipped to teach the truth, who were raised up, and they would replace him once he was gone. Timothy, Tychicus, all these men. That's what we need to be doing, raising up our replacements. And then at the end of chapter 20, Paul brings the elders from Ephesus, and he tells them, I'm never going to see you again. And they're heartbroken. They're heartsick. But he turns to them, he says, guard yourselves. Guard the people of God. Feed them, shepherd them, take care of them. It's his church. His son died for them. You go back and you take care of them. See, what a lot of you 
And I throw myself in the same category. What we do is we say, well, that's Ted's job. That's Cody's job. That's Ken's job. Doug Cecil's job. You guys take care of the flock. But guys, guess what? There's not enough pastors to go around. So you need to take care of the flock. You need to feed. You need to shepherd. And he says, watch out. Be careful. Look around you. We're under attack. And so he says, I entrust you to God and the message of his grace. He's sending these men back to Ephesus knowing I'll never see you again. But guess what? The ministry goes on. And here's what I know. When we're done in just a few minutes, you're all going to go places I will never go. You're going to go to office buildings I'll never walk into. You're going to work with people I'll never meet. You're going to have opportunities I will never have. And you have a job to do. You have got to do what he's saying right here. I entrust you to God and the message of his grace. He goes with you. He goes before you. He's preparing those divine appointments that you're scared of. But just tell the gospel. And here's what I know. You're going to get rejected. You'll hear some people be curious. But on occasion, you'll have the joy of somebody saying, I want that. I want what you have, and it will change your life. See, I want you to be able to say, there's nothing worth living for if I don't do that. So here's your questions. How far along are you on your journey of faith? Have you gotten as far as you would hope? And the answer to that, guys, if you're wondering, is no. Okay? <laughs> have you accomplished all that God has assigned for you to do? Obviously, no. But why not? That's the question. What's keeping you from going where God wants you to go, from being what God wants you to be? How well have you done in finding and raising up your replacement? Is there anybody in your life whom you're mentoring, discipling, and training? What steps are you willing to take to make that happen? This is where we get sweaty palmed. One guy, take one guy and pour your life into him. You don't have to be a theologian and you don't have to be an expert. You do have to care. And you do have to take the time. Then finally, go back and look at 1 Corinthians 9.23. Is this statement true of your life? Discuss ways you could make it so. Let me pray for you. Father, this is heavy stuff, but Father, this is what we're here for. Uh, there's no way to get around it. We're not on this planet to make money. We're not on this planet to live wonderful lives. We're not on this planet to have our best life now. We're here to be ambassadors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, most of us would have to admit we haven't done a very good job. And unlike Paul, we couldn't say that we've run the race well and, and that we've, we've made it our life calling to do what we've been called to do. And it's, but Father, I want it to be that way. I want it to be that way for me. I want to live my life with purpose, far beyond my own selfish purpose. So bless the time as they talk, Father, around the tables. May they be open, honest, loving, kind, gracious, but more than anything, Father, willing to deal with this issue of their calling and what you would have them do. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son and our savior, amen.